0: We're going through a series on Romans 9 to 11, looking at these chapters. And in these chapters, Paul is dealing with a problem. And the problem is the rejection of the Jews, the rejection of the good news of Jesus Christ by the Jews. Um, In chapter 9, he explored the problem from above, if you like, showing that God has always chosen some and not all of the descendants of Abraham. And so it's no surprise that now God seems to be choosing some of Israel to believe, but not all of them. And then in chapter 10, he looks at the problem, if you like, from below. He looks at um, Israel's stumbling, that it was both predicted in the Old Testament and a pattern from the Old Testament. And he ends chapter 10 by quoting um, from Isaiah in verse 21 of chapter 10. He says, all day long, um, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Why are Israel not saved? Because they're disobedient and obstinate. It's it's an ongoing issue for them. These are the reasons why Israel seems to have rejected the good news about Jesus. But in chapter 11, Paul begins to look forward and to look forward with hope for Israel. And he does this, actually, partly to challenge the new Gentile Christians. You were in Rome, the situation was that... um, Because of a decree decree of Caesar, um, all the Jews had had to leave Rome, including the Christian Jews. Um, And so the Christianity in Rome had become a purely Gentile affair. Uh, And now, um, not long before Paul wrote the letter of Romans, Jews were beginning to go back into Rome, including Christian Jews. Um, And that was causing some tension between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And you can imagine how the Gentile Christians were almost saying, actually, are you irrelevant anymore? Isn't God's message now for all people? Um, The Jewish people don't really matter anymore. God's rejected them and chosen Gentiles to be Christians instead. And so Paul delves into this issue in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, "Um, I asked then, did God reject his people? Maybe this is what some of the people in Rome were saying, some of the Gentile Christians. Hasn't God rejected Israel? We should no longer worry about them, but just focus on Christ and being his, his people. In chapter 11, Paul wants to say emphatically, no, God has not rejected his people. And actually, he goes on by the end of a chapter, um, a bit that Jonah didn't read, and I'm going to go on to this a bit because we're not meeting in a couple of weeks' time and we're going to look at this. Um, He actually goes on to say in verse 26, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. God hasn't rejected Israel, but in some sense, we'll think later on about what sense it is, in some sense, God's plan is to save all Israel. Let's look at the steps in Paul's argument. we to take four steps, um, and the first one is Israel's remnant in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 11. Paul starts off by pointing out that clearly not all Israel has rejected the good news about Jesus. Salvation has come to some of Israel. And again, this fits the pattern of Israel's history. At the various points, God focuses on a remnant. And remnant means the, those left over, the small amount left over. Paul's already touched on the idea of a remnant, of Israel being saved. In chapter 9, if you flick back um, to verses 27 to 28, he quotes from Isaiah. And there he says, "'Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea,' only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed overwhelming and righteous. In other words, even in Isaiah's time, Isaiah was saying, look, um, this great nation of Israel will be almost totally destroyed. There will only be a remnant left, the remnants that ended up going to Babylon. But that remnant will return. God will save, although God comes in judgment on his people, he will always save some. And actually, do you remember in chapter 10, Paul quotes from Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that very famous line, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, and he uses that to say that everyone will be saved, whether they Jews or Gentiles. But when you read the whole verse, um, so what it goes on to say, it says this, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors. Whom the Lord calls. Another word for a remnant, if you like. So even in Joel 2, 32, um, Joel is talking about all the, the destruction that's going to come on Israel, and he uses the image, I'm not sure if it's metaphorical or um, literal, of, of lake locusts coming on the land and destroying the land and destroying the people. Could be a reference to Babylon coming. Um, there'll be great destruction, and yet Joel says, there will be some who call on the name of the Lord, even in Jerusalem, even among God's people. And those survivors, the remnant, will be saved. So it's an idea that's strong in the Old Testament of this idea of the remnant of Israel. And so when Paul looks at this question about is God rejecting his people, he says, no, there will be some left over. I'm a, I'm a Jew, and yet I've become a Christian. And he turns to this um, story of Elijah, doesn't he? When we, now, we've done this recently, so hopefully you're very familiar with it. Um, Elijah um, is despairing over Israel, He's just um, done that great miracle where he called for God to send fire on his sacrifice. And although it was covered in water, God sent sent down fire and it's completely destroyed. Uh, And Israel seemed to turn back to God in a sense, and the prophets of Baal were killed. And yet Jezebel still had power, um, and Jezebel was seeking to have Elijah killed now. And so Elijah runs away, and he says to God, um, I'm the only one left. Israel's killed the prophets and I'm the only one left. Everyone else is worshipping Baal. And Paul maybe turns this story because he's sort of saying, well, maybe this is the attitude of the Gentiles in Rome at the time. They look at the Jews, and they see how many of the Jews have rejected the good news of Christ. Just like in Elijah's day, they'd rejected God and turned to Baal. And the Gentiles in Rome may well be saying, like Elijah, look, there's no Israelites left. They've all turned away. Surely he just reject the people. That's sort of the sense of maybe what Elijah's saying as well. Is that um, give up on these horrible people, Israel. Maybe start a new, new people with me. But of course, God responds to Elijah by saying very clearly, You're not the only one. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, there is a remnant. There are people remaining in Israel who have not turned to Baal. But notice what God says. God says, I have reserved for myself. Not that 7,000 people haven't really given in to Baal, but I've made sure 7,000 people haven't turned to Baal. In other the passage stresses the sovereignty of God, that it's God's choice, that it's God's call. And so in verse 5, Paul concludes that God has chosen a remnant of Israel by grace. It's God's choice that there's a remnant, even in Paul's day, who believe in Jesus. It's by grace. This idea that... Um, The remnant are chosen by grace. has two implications. Firstly, the fact that it is God's choice shows that God is in control. And this is important. You see, one of the issues um, and the concerns that Paul has about the fact that so many Israelites have rejected Jesus is that it looks like God's promises to Israel, God's promises to Abraham that his descendants will always be part of his people seem to be coming to an end. If God rejects Israel, then God in some ways is rejecting his covenant with Abraham. But God... God can't reject his covenant. God is faithful. God can't break his promises. But don't you realize that in order for God not to break his promises to Abraham, God has to be in control. If God just leaves it up to people's choice and people's decision, then maybe all Israel would turn away from God. And his promises to Abraham to bring blessing through his people will come to nothing. And yet Paul says that won't happen because God is in control and part of God being in control is that he'll make sure there is always a remnant of Abraham's natural descendants who are truly part of his people. God is in charge. He is sovereign. But secondly, this means that those that are believers are believers by God's grace, not by their own works, by their own efforts, by their own cleverness. Of course, Paul himself was acutely aware that in his case that was obvious. He had gone all out to eradicate any believers in Christ. Um, In a sense, he was persecuting Christ himself, God's Messiah, God's Son. And yet, although that was Paul's set attitude and set direction and set vision and set aim, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and completely turned his life around. Paul realized that he was the worst of sinners. He had no right to be a part of the true people of God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, out of God's gracious blessing, God had brought him to that, case, that situation. And yet, Paul says, although it's not so obvious with other people, although you might look at people like Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they, they decided to go and follow Jesus and become his disciples even for them there's a sense in that god was working behind the scenes to choose them to call them to make them his people to make them believe in christ even at one point point, um, jesus says to peter doesn't he it's god that's revealed this to you the truth about jesus christ so god is in control and through his divine control and gracious activity he ensures there is a remnant of ethnic Jews who turn to Christ. But what of the rest? Well, it says of those, um, those that do not turn, those that are not part of the elect, those chosen by God, that they were hardened, it says that in verse 7. Again, the emphasis is, in God, is the fact that God is in control. At the chapter 10, Israel's rejection is described as due to their disobedience and their obstinacy. In other words, it's looking at it from below, but now we're looking at it from above. Just as God chooses some by grace and gifts them with faith, so he also chooses to harden the hearts of others so they cannot respond. And the idea of hardening, of course, picks up on the example of Pharaoh in, in chapter 9. God hardened his heart so that he wouldn't let the people go until everyone had seen the full force of God's power demonstrated in the ten plagues. That was part of God's plan to rescue Israel and to form them into his special people. Now, however, almost ironically, Paul describes those from Israel who have not believed as the ones who are hardened. And he quotes from three separate verses. He combines two, um, one verse from the law and one verse um, from Isaiah, and then quotes from a psalm. So he refers to a verse from the prophets, a verse from the law, and a verse from the writings, the whole sweep of scripture. And what holds them together is this idea of darkened eyes, the idea that the hardening of heart is really God blinding them to the truth. And yet this, in a way, is part of a punishment by God on his people. Um, the quote from the psalm is from psalm 69 which we read earlier on um, and did he get the the link with the crucifixion it talked about they would offer him vinegar instead of wine and that happens at the crucifixion there's a, there's a reference to that verse there um, and of course israel um, as a nation were responsible for calling for christ to be crucified and just as david in the psalm calls for vengeance on his enemies So in a sense, this psalm is very relevant to those who had had Jesus crucified. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent before me. See, a hardening of heart is a punishment. A darkening, a cutting off from the message is a punishment for our attitudes. Take the example of the story of Herod in the Gospels. He had an opportunity to listen to God's words. Um, He actually had the greatest prophet around at the time locked up, John the Baptist. He would go and listen to him on a regular basis. He was intrigued by his words. And yet, when the crunch came, he had John beheaded. Then in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Herod finally gets to meet someone far greater than John the Baptist, someone of a far greater truth who's done amazing miracles that many people have seen, who's preached amazing sermons that many people have heard. And so Herod has Jesus brought before him. Truth incarnates. And what does Jesus say to Herod? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? It was God's judgment. Herod had had his opportunity. He'd been offered the gospel and the chance to repent by John the Baptist, and he cut off John's head. And so God's response is to cut off any truth, any words, any miracle or sign from Herod. In the same way, Paul says that the Jews who God has held out his hands to and yet they've been disobedient and obstinate. Now God hardens their hearts so they cannot see. Of course, this is tragic, and it seems final and negative, yet God is the God who brings good out of evil. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it had a purpose, a deeper purpose. It was so that God could show and demonstrate his signs and wonders unto Israel and to Egypt, we might also question whether the hardening of the hearts of Israel, whether their falling away was also a part of a purpose. We might ask whether it was a permanent falling away. And we might ask what God was doing through it. Well, if you're asking that Paul deals with that in the next verses. So if you look at chapter eleven, verse eleven, he asked that question, like again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. In other words, um, their falling is not necessarily permanent. And their hardening has a purpose. So let's look, first of all, at that purpose, and it is the Gentile salvation. Um, Paul deals with this, in, talks about this partly in verses 11 to 24, um, the positive thing that came out of so much rejection by Israel was that the good news of Jesus went to the Gentiles that they could be saved. Why was that? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. One could be you could go back to the Gospels and see what Jesus says in the Gospels. In the parable of the tenants, um, that story about the vineyards, we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, the story of the vineyards, um, the tenants in the vineyard, of course, are Jewish people. Um, the owner of the vineyard is God, and his son, is, of course, stands for Jesus. And God sends his son to the tenants to get what, he did, what is due to him. And what do they do to the son? They kill the son. And how does the owner of the vineyard respond? How does God respond? Well, Jesus says this at the end of the parable. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. There's a sense in which um, Israel's rejection of Jesus by having him crucified Opens the gates and a possibility for Gentiles to come in. Their rejection, their fall, allows the salvation of Gentiles. And so Paul uses the metaphor of the olive tree in this passage um, rather than the vineyard to represent the blessings of being part of God's people. Here, the unbelieving Jews, those who reject Jesus, are the branches that are broken off, while the Gentiles are the wild olive branches that are grafted in. Paul's image is there to show us that actually there's been a change. And yet Paul's image stresses that the change isn't a complete rejection of Israel. God hasn't cut the tree down and replaced it with another one. In fact, some of the original branches are still there, those believing Jews. He even goes on to say there's hope for those that have been cut off to be put back in again. But actually Paul's experience in ministry also points to the fact that the rejection of the Jews brings the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul's um, basic understanding is that the gospel is first and foremost for the Jews. So you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile." And whenever he entered a town, Paul, although he saw himself as apostles to the Gentiles, began by preaching to the Jews. He'd always go to the synagogue. And the normal pattern would be that some in the synagogue would believe, but actually most would reject his message, and he'd be forced out of the synagogue. And then, having been rejected by most of the Jews, he would go to the Gentiles with the message. In this way, in a sense, it was only because of the Jewish rejection of the message that the good news came to the Gentiles, and so they were saved. Somehow, God uses the Jewish rejection of the gospel to bring salvation to us Gentiles. God uses the rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, to enable us, us non-Jews, to find a place as part of God's kingdom under his Messiah. And yet Paul is keen that the Gentiles do not see this as a reason to be arrogant against the unbelieving or even believing Jews. Paul emphasizes that the believing Jews are saved by grace. We saw that. But now he emphasizes as well that the Gentiles are only saved by grace. They're only saved because of their faith, not because of their works. And faith, of course, is the acceptance of God's offer of salvation. Faith is never a claim to be better than others or more worthy of being saved. It's a claim on the kindness of God and of his grace. And Paul is saying here there's a real danger for these Gentile Christians that if they start looking down on the Jews, if they start thinking of themselves as as better than the Jews that have rejected Jesus, that arrogance may lead them to lose their faith. You see, if we begin to look down on those who do not believe then we're beginning to see our own faith as our work, what we do to be saved. As we do that, it stops being faith and starts being a work. It becomes a reliance on myself, on my ability to believe, on my um, attitude and wisdom that brought me to faith, rather than a reliance on God. And when we do that, we put ourselves in exactly the same position as the Jews who would rejected the gospel. Who were seeking salvation through their own efforts. Paul warns, and I said said earlier on, it's a dire warning, isn't it? That arrogance can lead us to lose our faith and so be cut off, like the unbelieving Jews, from the privileges God gives us by grace. Of course, if you truly believe, God would never let that happen. And yet, it's a warning nonetheless that this is what we want to hold on to. So, Paul warns against arrogance on the part of the Gentiles. But Paul goes further to undermine any Gentile arrogance by claiming that although they became Christians because the Jews Jews rejected the Gospel, actually, God will use their faith and their belief to ultimately bring the Jews to salvation. So let's look at our last point, Israel's um, reconciliation. Um, Again, we're looking really at verses 11 to 24, but then we're going to go on and look at verses 25 to 26 as well. Paul's argument in verse 11 is this that the Jewish rejection of the gospel has brought about the salvation for some Gentiles. Yet in the same verse, he argues that this will be the means to bring some of the unbelieving Jews, those who have been hardened, eventually come to faith in other words the hardening is not necessarily a permanent hardening rather their hardening allows the gentiles to come to faith and the gentiles coming to faith paul hopes will provoke envy in the jews when they see that they have the messiah they have god's promises they have god's blessings and they'll want them for themselves and so those hardened jews through the faith of the gentiles that have had faith because they were hardened. May come back to Christ. And so Paul says in verse 14, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Do you see how this sort of maybe pricks the bubble of the arrogance of the Gentiles? He's saying, look, you think my ministry is as, as an apostle to the Gentiles. You think that I'm really concerned about you. Well, in a sense, I am, but I'm not really. I'm really concerned about the Jews. Um, I'd long that the Jewish people would be saved, and although my main mission isn't to the Jews, my hope is that my main mission to the Gentiles will be enough to provoke the Jews to come to faith. That's what I'm concerned about. Again, Paul's trying to prick the arrogance of the Gentiles there. But actually, we can take encouragement from this as well, can't we? We may know those who seem totally hardened against the gospel. Even those who were once Christians, who once maybe grew up in the faith, who in some ways had the tradition of faith that the Jewish people of Paul's day had. Yet, someone's, yet this passage makes it clear that a, a hardening at the present doesn't mean a permanent hardening. God and his wisdom and power may have hardened them for a period, for a time, for a reason, only to bring them back to faith, back to salvation. Let's never give up or write off any of our non-believing family or friends who seem to have turned, on, turned away from God. But before we finish, let's go to this difficult point in the next section, verses 25 to 26. Because Paul says, actually, all Israel will be saved. Let me read those verses to you. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in parts until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. What does Paul mean by the idea that all Israel will be saved? Well, i are not going to give a very definitive answer this evening, um, I just want to list six different interpretations, and this is straight out of a commentary, um, six different interpretations that have been given over time. Um, firstly, this means that every Israelite from every age will be saved. So there's a sense in... Um, so people that believe this say that somehow, when at the end of time, when it comes to the resurrection, Jesus will preach, in, come down and will preach to all Israelites, all Jews, all those that are descendants of Abraham, Um, and they'll all then respond to the gospel. God will take away the hardening and they'll all be saved at that point. Um, That takes that idea of all Israel being saved very literally. Of course, there's issues with that. It doesn't seem to fit with the pattern of what God does or the pattern of the the gospel. But that's what one or two have said it means. I would say that all the elect of Israel be saved. So all those that have been chosen by God um, will be saved. So that includes all those that have been chosen that already believe, but also those that, have been chosen but for the moment are hardened but God has chosen them anyway and one day he'll bring them to, to believe so all the elect of Israel at all time will be saved and that, that goes that fits with the pattern of the Gentiles as well and all the Gentile elect all those that God has chosen from the Gentiles will be saved as well that seems to fit the pattern of the Bible across the, across the way but it doesn't easily um, explain what Paul is saying here it seems a bit of a contortion of the basic idea that all Israel will be saved Others say all Israelites at the end of the age will be saved so that just before Christ returns or as Christ returns, at that point, all those Israelites that are alive then will somehow come to faith, that there will be a great turning of Israel to God and all of them will believe. In that sense, all Israel will be saved at that point. Um, And that fits with the idea, doesn't it? Um, That it's until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, so there's a sense that this is a future thing. This is after that will happen. Um, The fourth idea is that Israel as a whole, alive at the end of the age, will be be saved, but not every Israelite. Uh, And so this is the idea that it's not not every individual Israelite, but Israel as a nation. Israel as a corporate body. That somehow Israel as a whole body will turn to Christ and believe in Christ, but there will be some Israelites that still won't believe. Um, And that will be just before the end of the age. Another idea is that a large number of Israelites at the end of the age will become Christians. Um, that's maybe not that different to the one before. Or, um, and the last one is Israel redefined to include all Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. So the idea that actually when we, as Gentiles we become Christians, in a sense a true Israel now includes Jews and Gentiles together. Well, that doesn't seem to work in this passage, which is talking very much about ethnic Israel as opposed to Gentiles. So there's problems with that one. I don't know know about you, but as you look at all those um, possibilities, you can probably see um, how some might work and others may not. Um, And you can probably see problems with all of them. And it's hard to decide between them. And maybe we're missing something that um, everyone else has missed as well. Before Jesus came, though, remember that there was a period when, in history, most of those who were believers in God were from israel although not all of them there were even then some who were grafted in think about Ruth, who was a mobile test that got grafted in but most of those who believed most of those who were the true people of israel true people of God, were part of israel that was true up to the point of jesus christ wasn't it and then after Jesus came, there's a sense in which um, the true people of God became to in- came to include all nations and all people, and that became a much more of a bigger focus of it. And that's still true now, that the, the gospel is spreading out throughout the world. People from many nations are coming to faith. Um, I'm quite excited at the moment at St. Luke's. Um, with the exception of Antarctica, I think there's now people that come to St. Luke's who um, were born in all the country, all the continents in the world. Um, not Antarctica as Jonah keeps pointing out when I say this. (laughs) Um, uh, And that reflects the worldwide spread of Christianity. There's people from all nations now, and, and certainly the era we're in now is the era when the gospel is going out to all nations, that the believers of God are people from all nations. But maybe there will come a time before Christ returns when God will somehow turn back to the Jews and the Israelites. And um, just as in the Roman Empire, for most of the time there, there were Christians in the Roman Empire, but mostly it was a pagan empire. At some point there became enough Christians in the Roman Empire that the empire itself tipped and became officially Christian. Maybe there'll be a point in the future where Israel will grow more and more Christians and tip and become officially Christian that the Jews won't naturally see themselves in Jews, therefore, as people that will reject Jesus Christ because that's a Christian thing and the Christians are against Jews. But Jews will naturally come to understand that Jesus was the Messiah and he'll be accepted by the majority of Jews that he is the true, true living Messiah and they'll come to a true faith. And so that not every Israelite, but not every Jew, but there'll be a sense in which the cultural notion of Judaism or of Israel might turn to Christ. I don't think we can talk with any great confidence about any one of these directions. And in some ways, I go back to number two as all the elect of Israel at all the time because that seems to fit the rest of the teaching of the Bible. But it may be that this passage is Paul looking forward to a time just before the end when Israel will truly accept Christ. And that's certainly Paul's hope, isn't it? Paul was passionate for his fellow Jews And the main thrust of what he's saying is that he did not believe that God had given up on Israel. And he didn't want the Gentile Christians in Rome to give up on either the Jewish heritage they had come to have a share in or to see themselves as superior in any way to the non-believing Jews. And yet along with Paul, to long that many more Jews would come to believe in Jesus for themselves. Let's pray.